Hello, Lauren Foster here. Welcome to the Take 15 podcast. This is the weekly series where we bring you short conversations with some of the world's most interesting and accomplished people. This week marks a major milestone for the show. It's our 400th episode. We're pretty excited about that. But we're also really excited about the guest for this episode, Meb Faber. He's a co-founder and chief investment officer of Cambria Investment Management. We also have a special guest host this week, Rodney Sullivan. He's a CFA charter holder and executive director of the Mayo Center at UVA's Darden School of Business. He and Meb discuss industry trends and global asset allocation strategy at the dawn of the new decade of the 2020s. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Meb, it's great to have you on the CFA Institute Take 15 today. I understand this is our 400th episode, so congratulations to CFA Institute for that great accomplishment. Meb, you're usually on the other side of the table hosting your own Meb Faber show, so it's going to be a little bit different for you being on the other side of the table, but we're thrilled to have you here. Great to be here. Great to be back. Uh, let's dive right in with uh, some questions. Um, we've had a great um, bull run in markets. Um, we're 2020 is just around the corner. Um, Robert Schiller was recently uh, commented that he sees bubbles everywhere and that uh, you just have to ride them out. So in other words, you shouldn't take the time or, or effort to try to tactically asset allocate markets. Um, you've written a lot about tactical asset allocation. You have a book on the topic. How do you come down on this? So as the decade winds down, which is hard to say, I mean, it's hard enough to say the year's ending, but the decade really. So it's always a good time to reflect. And what we've been telling a lot of people is celebrate. December 31st comes around, have that glass of champagne, enjoy yourself, wake up Jan 1 and take your leave, take your Advil, deal with your hangover. <laughs> but say it's been a great decade for stock returns in the U.S., um, but try to be a little sober and thoughtful going forward. In other words, take your medicine. Um, most returns for traditional markets like U.S. stocks and U.S. bonds probably going to be muted. U.S. bonds, you know what you're going to get probably, let's round up and say 2%. And U.S. stocks with valuations using Schiller's own metric, uh, probably low single digits going forward. And so not a bubble doesn't have to mean it's going to crash and it's awful, but way less than a historical 10% that we've been accustomed to seeing. Um, and that's sort of the bad news. The good news is the rest of the world, I think, looks quite a bit better. Let's talk about diversification then as, as one of the tools to succeed. Um, you've written a lot about home country bias and that um, investors tend to prefer their home countries and over allocate to that. Uh, I recently had the opportunity to interview Jack Bogle, who said, if you're a US investor, home country bias is probably okay um, for a couple of reasons. One is because the U.S. has a reserve currency, and so during times of crises, um, gives a little bit of cushion there um, on the downside. And secondly, because U.S. has great growth opportunity because we're free and fair capital markets. Um, how do you come down on this? It's, it's hard to disagree with Bogle. Um, he's the best. But before he passed, he was one of the ones that also said, uh, used his formula, we call it the Bogle formula, to expect future returns. And he said U.S. stocks are supposed to be about 4%. Yeah. So that doesn't get me too excited. That having been said, look, home country bias, most U.S. investors put about 80% in the U.S. And the market cap weighting for around the world is half. So really, if you were going to be index investor, you should only put half in the U.S. So, and most people are making a massive active overweight. 
And that's not always terrible. Sometimes it's great. Last 10 years is awesome. But going forward with US stocks being some of the most expensive markets in the world, probably not a great idea. Now, it's less bad in the US than it is if you're, say, in the UK or um, Brazil, where the markets are a small percentage of the world, but they also put 80% in their own market. So that's a really bad idea. And if you ask anyone in Greece, Brazil, Russia, Cyprus, all these other places where markets have gone down 40, 60, 80, 90%, um, it's not that great of an idea. In, in the US, as a market, if you go back the last 120 years, rarely is the best performer, which it has been the past decade. So these things have a way, uh, one regime sets up for the next one, bulls set up for bears and vice versa. Uh, a lot of the valuation setting up better rest of the world. Um, let's talk about diversification more broadly. Are, diver are investors appropriately diversified across asset classes and strategies, say, considering uh, long short, things of that sort? Quick answer is no. Um, the way the analogy we like to use is, is baking. As long as you have the main ingredients, the exact amounts don't matter that much. So as long as you have butter, sugar, flour, all the good things that go into chocolate chip cookies, you should be all right. But if you leave one major ingredient out, that's the problem. And the three big ones we talk about is global stocks, global bonds, and real assets. Um, and often we see, and if we look back in our book, 2000 years, one of our favorite portfolios, almost impossible for most institutions to beat this portfolio is the Talmud. And it was basically, and I'm paraphrasing, um, put a third in business, a third keeping reserve, which we call uh, bonds, um, and a third in, in property or real assets. And that's a really hard portfolio to beat, but a lot of people, for whatever reason, like to exclude one of those. And that becomes a lot harder um, over time because you really want an asset allocation that works well in any market environment and not try to get into predicting which one is gonna be the one that we're gonna see in the future. Uh, but those three are the main categories, global stocks, bonds, and real assets, we think are really important. How about, uh, I know you've done some work in managed futures and long short strategies. Should investors consider those as well? A lot of asset allocation comes down to philosophy, okay? There's, as Bogle once said, um, when asked a question, he said, are there strategies that are better? And he says, yes, but there's infinite worse. And so that's the way we think about asset allocation. There are plenty of just fine asset allocations as long as you understand them. The problem with most buy and hold allocations, and we looked at dozens in our book, is that they all suffer eventually from drawdowns. And the problem that most people have behaviorally is they really hate drawdowns. And if you're doing buy and hold, you're sitting on your hands and you have this feeling of doing nothing. And that's hard, I think, psychologically for a lot of people to see their wealth go down 10, 20, 40, 60, 80%. Um, and so trend following is a strategy that's also not easy to, to um, comply with because you often look different. So that's great in times like 2008, 2009, when you're avoiding most of that bear market. It's horrible in the decade after when the S&P is romping and stomping. And so there's a great yin yang of the two together. We, we call them Trinity portfolios. We put half in buy and hold, half in trend. And that ends up being an allocation that I think most people can, can stick with. Mm -hmm. Let's change uh, gears a little bit. Last week, you were a panelist on UVA Investing Conference, and the title of the panel was The Future of Systematic Investing. Uh, a lot of changes happening in our industry right now, including a move towards more systematic and quantitative investing, but also some other things, um, low cost, uh, low fees, zero cost commissions. Um, what are your thoughts about some of the things that are happening um, and Markets. There's never been a better time to be an investor. And that doesn't mean just retail, it's also institutional. In 2019, 2020, you have the choice to not pay any commissions if you don't want to. Almost every brokerage, the dominoes fell over that 
they're all charging zero, $0 trades for equities and ETFs. Um, but also, if you buy a basket, a global portfolio of ETFs, you can canvas the whole world for about five basis points, 0.05%. That's basically free. And so that's changing a lot of the landscape of investing. So both from the standpoint of an investor, which is awesome, but also the standpoint for a lot of people in careers and asset management. And we say you have to be prepared for a world where the base case buy and hold investing is free. And how does that change things? And in many ways, you include short lending, it's actually negative expense ratio, which is crazy to think about. Um, and so as people plan their careers, say, how do you think about careers that are future-proof, yeah. but also as you plan your allocations, um, it's a lot harder to think about, hey, we can charge one, two, three percent, two and 20, whatever it may be in a world where the base case is a pretty high bar at zero. Yeah. Great, great opportunity for investors. Uh, how about um, machine learning? What do you see as the uh, the impact or the possibility for machine learning? So as you think about what we think about quants, you know, I was an engineer uh, here at Virginia, and so um, on one end is everything from just having very basic rules. So Bogle might have said a 60-40 portfolio, buy and hold, rebounds once a year. On the other end is probably machine learning, everything else going on. We're somewhere in the middle. Um, there will absolutely be developments in that world. I think it skews mostly towards shorter time frames. Yeah. Uh, part of the reason being is if, even if you look back at our full history of investing, it's only 200 years that you can really count on. If you look at the, the modern currency system, 50 years old. Yeah. Uh, so while people love to, you know, quants like, you know, like myself, love to just torture the data and look into all these things that are going on, you had to take a step back. And this is why a lot of people got in trouble in 2008, 2009. Um, take a step back and say, hey, look, we only have so much history. What looks different? How are things similar to the past? Will, will that generate some new insights? Absolutely. It tends to be, I think, probably going to be more shorter term ideas, but probably some new equity factors people don't even think about in combination. So, yeah, I'm, I'm bullish on the idea. Cool. Let's change gears a little bit. Um, you made the comment that equity investors are four times levered the market. What do you mean by that? So as you think about risks, most people think about risks, I think, um, very simply. And so uh, you think about, they, they tend to neglect their human capital. So the example I was giving was financial advisors. So let's say you're a financial advisor at an RIA or even say like a local wire. So let's say you're Merrill Lynch, okay? Uh, you have exposure to the stock market through your own portfolio. You have exposure to the stock market through your client's portfolio, which is probably mostly equities. And if it's not, the equities dominate the volatility. So, so you have exposure there. Um, the revenue stream of those clients, when a bear market happens because they act crazy, uh, they may withdraw in the bear market. So in a bear market, your personal portfolio uh, goes down, your, so your net worth, your client's portfolios go down, so your revenue, your business goes down. They may leave, so the revenue goes down more. And on top of that, if you don't own your own company, companies tend to downsize during recessions and big bear markets. So you can make an argument, and I do, but most people don't agree with me, is that uh, as a financial advisor, you should probably own no U.S. stocks at all. Mm -hmm. And um, in fact, you should probably hedge those. And people say, that's crazy. Why would anyone ever do that? And I say, well, look at airline companies. They hedge their major risk. Maybe it's jet fuel. Mm -hmm. um, you look at cereal companies. They hedge the price of wheat and it balances out the revenue streams. And 
we had a, we've had a few RIAs reach out and say that's a great idea. We've started to implement some hedging ideas, but most people say that's kind of crazy. And uh, a lot of people like the leverage. If you look at a lot of people that make one of the biggest mistakes in investing is investing in their own employer's stock yep. in their 401k. They love to load up on it. And hey, on one case, you have Amazon's of the world. On the other case, you have the other thousands of companies that that was probably a bad idea for. So we say to at least let people think about it because um, it's, it's an exposure that Hey, again, for the 2010s, been a great four times leverage. Right, right. great. Um, so we're almost out of time, but I do want to ask uh, about your own show. Uh, how did you come to start your own podcast and how long has it been running? Oh, man, we're in two years, probably almost 200 episodes now. Wow. So not as not as prolific as you guys. But the, uh, you know, as you look back on the history of content, I mean, we started out um, on a very random whim, you know, writing academic papers which was also at the time blogs and books, and that's become in the more social era, Twitter and uh, the podcast, it's been so much fun. I mean, you get a chat with people, talk about all the things we love to talk about. There's a little corner of the universe that seems to think that's pretty interesting too. Um, but more than anything, it's been an excuse just to, to catch up with people um, and talk about ideas. I mean, everything from farmland investing we talk about to uh, on occasion, we talk about crypto and stocks and asset allocation, but it's been it's been a blast. Well, your show has been fantastic. I highly recommend it. Um, is podcasting sort of the, the future for how folks will uh, learn about investing and consume their content? Yeah, I think um, there's probably going to be a, a lot of development. I mean, we got started podcasting was was in the early days, but if you look at it, it's just exploding, and that's awesome. And maybe we'll see more video 10 years from now. Who knows? It's, it's going to be holograms. But we laugh because if you look back in history, some of the biggest investment advisors got built on the backbone of content, whether it's Fisher through magazine articles and direct mail, whether it's um, Edelman, who used to do a lot of radio. I mean, there's all sorts of different mediums of TV. It's really about finding the, the one that works with you most. But we love the podcasting just because it's so easy to do, uh, you know, and, and eventually I'm sure it's going to be more video, et cetera. But uh, we, we love it. Great. Um, so we're out of time. But I want to thank you uh, for being here with us today and this 400th episode of CFA Institute Take 15. Thanks for having me. It's great to be back in Seville. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you're listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts and it helps others find the show. Also, a quick reminder, this podcast isn't intended to provide expert advice on the topics we covered. If you need tax, accounting or legal advice, please consult a professional. I'm Lauren Foster. Thanks so much for listening.